invite you to open the word of the Lord this morning to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, our text for this day is verse 12 down to verse number 29 of Romans chapter 2. I'd like to ask as you find that, that you would stand out of reverence for God's word if you are able as it is read this day. Romans chapter 2, we'll read down 12 to 29. Let us hear the inspired word of the Lord this morning together. The apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 12, he says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we now come to open your word, Lord, would you give us eyes to see your word this morning? Father, through your grace and mercy, would you give us ears to hear? Father, through your Holy Spirit, would you do your work in our lives that only you can do? Oh God, we are dependent upon you. So Lord, we pray that you would take your word 
that you would encourage us in Christ Jesus. Pray, Father, that you would convict us over sin. We pray, Father, that you would help us to better understand and apply the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to our lives. Do your work, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. The brothers and sisters in Rome that Paul wrote this letter to were no doubt made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And like every single church since the beginning of the church, this church had their particular struggles and their particular difficulties. It's hard to imagine any more fertile ground for discord than planting the gospel in the mixed soil made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Paul will eventually bring up issues the church was currently facing, like eating meats, meats that were bought from a market that they were also butchered and taken to a temple of idols and offered up there. And if one thought it was right to eat that meat and another thought it was wrong, how do they interact with one another? How do they show Christian love? He's going to spend roughly two chapters, chapter 14 and 15, giving instruction to the church on how they're to do that, how they are to live together to the glory of the gospel. But before going, getting to those issue, issues, Paul needs to lay a foundation of the gospel in this letter. Because if the foundation is off, the whole building will be off. If the church is not built on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ, then it is no true church. It's better off being disbanded. Everything else is going to be off if their foundation is off in their understanding of the gospel. So in these first few chapters, Paul is taking his time spelling out how the gospel of Jesus constitutes the true fulfillment of what the Old Testament scriptures teach and how through Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile are united together and brought into one people. Paul has needed to walk through the truth that all of us are sinners before God and that apart from Christ, we are deserving of his judgment. It's having to bring them to that point of understanding their sin so that the gospel of Jesus Christ will be clearly understood. And that is where we find ourselves this morning and in the rest of chapter two. These verses, as you could tell as I was reading them, they speak a lot about Jew and Gentile. We need to have in our mind Paul's big argument as we come to these verses. Again, that argument of laying a foundation to show how both Jew and Gentiles are sinners deserving of God's judgment and only saved by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verses 12 to 29, we're going to see Paul focusing on the Jews in particular and how they could have a false view of God's judgment about the judgment that is to come. They are secondly going to be warned of a false sense of security that they have. 
So in these verses, Paul is warning and instructing those in the church of Rome, this church that he's hoping to go visit, and he's writing this letter to them. He is warning them against making the wrong conclusions. He's exhorting them to think about their ethnic background in the proper way. And he's instructing them about how to properly think about Gentiles and the law of God and to think about circumcision. He's rebuking some in these verses who are trusting in their mere heritage to save them instead of in Christ. And it's my prayer that through the Holy Spirit, we would likewise today hear these warnings from God's word, that we would have a proper understanding about the judgment that is to come, that we would have not have a false sense of security in things that cannot save us. May God so speak to us today from his living and active word. We're going to basically have, we have two points here in the text before us, things that God's people are to beware of, two main things. First, a false view of judgment. We're going to see that in verse 12 to 16, a false view of judgment. Secondly, we're going to see a false sense of security. That's in verse 17 to the end, verse 29. So those two things, those two warnings to the church, a false view of judgment, and secondly, a false sense of security. So we'll begin with point number one, a false view of judgment. In these verses, the concept of judgment bleeds over from the previous verses. As you see in verse number 11, just glance down in your Bibles to it. Verse number 11 says, for God shows no partiality. Each and every person will be judged by God. And in verse 12 to 16, Paul is explaining further what he means by that, what he means by an impartial judgment and what that looks like. The impartial nature of God's judgment has to do with God judging both Jew and Gentiles together. And he is going to judge them, speaking to that fact here, that he will judge the Gentiles, even though, technically speaking, they do not have and have not received the law of Moses. That law was specifically given to the Jews in the Old Testament. Many of the Gentiles hadn't heard of it. They had not received that. So Paul is kind of answering here, how can God be impartial if he's judging the Gentiles for something they've not been given, they've not received? The Gentiles haven't received the law of Moses in their life. So so how can God hold them accountable to that with which they have not received? How is that showing no partiality? And that's what Paul, that's the flow of his argument here as he comes to these verses. So two things to mention here, uh, Paul teaching us about God's judgment in these verses. First thing is in verse 12 and 13, again, to reiterate, God's judgment is impartial. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You see how this encompasses everyone. Those with or under the law will be judged, and those without the law will also perish without the law. God doesn't make a distinction in his judgment between the Jew and the Gentile here, even though one had the law and the other did not. 
Notice here there's a commonality between these two. All who have sinned, all who have sinned will be judged. Paul, again, is going to drive this point home crystal clear in chapter 3, that all are sinners, all have fallen. No one has done righteousness. No one is righteous. We have broken his law. In verse number 13, he states, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Again, Paul is reiterating the fact that we are judged by our works. As Pastor Adam said last week, good works are not the basis of your salvation, but they are most definitely the evidence, right? So good works are not the basis, but they are the evidence of what God has done in our life through Jesus Christ. I'm just going to put the Paul's button on for a moment there on verse number 13, and we're going to pick back up with that thought in verse 25, okay? So we're going to pause there for a moment. So God's judgment is impartial. That's what we see here. Both Jew and Gentile are going to be judged by God. There's no escaping the judgment of God that is to come. Secondly, here we see God is just to judge the Gentiles. Paul is going to teach us how God is just to judge everyone. Look at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. You see his argument here, God is just to judge the Gentiles because even though they don't have the law of Moses, they still have the law of God. They haven't received this external law, but they have received in their nature, we could call it the moral law of God. And thus, they have that law that they have broken, and they are liable to judgment. Verse 15 and 16 explain this concept even further, where Paul writes, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. This is very instructive for us here. Paul teaches that Gentiles have, quote, the work of the law written on their hearts. How is that? How do Gentiles who've never heard of Moses have the law of God written on their hearts? Well, it says here it's by their having a conscience, right? The conscience that people have of being a law to them by their understanding of basic morality of what is right and what is wrong. Now, we know some people have strong consciences, some people have weak consciences, some people have seared consciences who over time they reject, 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 and it becomes seared and seared and seared. Some have tender, but the point is, is that the conscience is a sense of right and wrong that Gentiles have. When they sin against and do what they know is right, they are condemned. They are a law to themselves. Sometimes they live in obedience to it. Sometimes they don't. Their thoughts conflict. So each and every Gentile, this just helps us understand the world that we see today. Helps us understand that every single person who has been born has this conscience or law of God written on their heart. A couple of months ago, I was watching uh, 
this show on uh, uh, Netflix. It caught my eye. It was something about the Amazon and people that had first been made contact with uh, through uh, a boat that had gone there and they had met these, these people and they were filming them. And it was a documentary that took place over months. But basically, they finally got to the point that they could speak and get somebody to translate and to learn this language and speak about it. And they were talking about this person, not any idea of the outside world. And he was speaking and telling this person, I'm going to kill this man because he took my woman. She was mine and he took him, so I'm going to come and I'm going to kill him. Even in his mind, he knew that doing of taking of his woman, not even having a concept of marriage, of taking his woman that was his, that was wrong, right? That's something that's wrong to do. And one could ask, where, where does that come from? How come you can see that? And that's just an example of what we see here of God's law written upon mankind's heart. How come people who couldn't care less about God, and just think about the world that we live in and people that you know, how come people that couldn't care less about God think it wrong to steal or to murder or to lie or to commit adultery or to take advantage of others? to give justice to those who are oppressed. It's because of the fact of these verses. It helps us understand the world that we live in. Even an atheist who doesn't believe in the concept of absolute truth will get very upset with you if you steal their car. All of a sudden, he doesn't apply what he teaches, that truth is relative, and your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. Well, in my truth, it's not wrong to steal a car, so there. Right? People have God's law in their heart and they know it and they've broken it. We need to understand this truth, especially as we engage the world in evangelism of sharing the gospel. We need to know that others who are lost like we used to be have a sense in their conscience that they have done wrong. Try to cover it up. Many trust in some sort of works salvation. That is, you do more good things than bad things and you'll be okay. But we need to point people to Christ, the one who lived perfectly and forgives the guilty conscience. So we need to use this to help us understand with others and to appeal to their consciences that they have of doing wrong and right. And we need to understand of how this applies to Scripture and help show them what Jesus Christ has done to forgive us of our sins. Verse 16 teaches us clearly about God's judgment. It says, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All the secrets of men will be exposed. It's only those who through the gospel trust in Jesus that will be saved from judgment. Listen, our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins. Our greatest need in this life, as many years as the Lord gives us, our greatest need that we have is to be forgiven of our sins because there is a judgment to come. 
I want to impress that word upon everybody here, but especially those of you who are younger. Those of you children here this morning, I want to impress that especially upon you to listen to say, the most important thing in life is having your sins forgiven before Jesus Christ. What would it gain you? What would it gain you if you gained this whole world yet to lose your soul of not trusting in Jesus Christ? We see in this ver these verses, we've seen it last week, we see it again this week, the very sobering reality and truth of the judgment that is to come. Paul says this judgment is coming. You know it, I know it, consciences bear witness to it. The call is for us to trust not in what we have done, but to trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us. When your conscience tells you that you have sinned against God, that is a good thing. You need to agree with that conscience that you have sinned against God. And you also need to hear the most beautiful words that you will ever hear, that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life that you could not live. And that he came and he died on the cross as our substitute in our place to forgive us of our sins, that we may be forgiven and at peace with God. For there is a day, as these verses speak of, when Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to see all the secrets of our heart. And those who are outside of Jesus Christ will be judged. The call for each of us is to come to Jesus Christ. Don't have a false view of the judgment. Realize that everybody, each of us, will stand before God, that each of us has sinned and we need a Savior through Jesus Christ. Sounds like the special alert. Okay. Um, so, okay, I won't make any connection there with judgment to come and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> stop that. All right. Very good. Um, so, a false view of judgment. Second, here in the text, we see a warning against a false sense of security, a false sense of security. Here we're going to see that there's going to be an exhortation to not rely on anything other than Jesus Christ to save you from this judgment. In these verses, now, as you see in verse number 17, Paul is in particular, again, he's calling the Jews out here. In chapter one, he's spoken to the Gentiles. He's just, he's hit them again in these previous verses. And I think he's using the Gentiles again there to really jab at the Jews to say, look, even the Gentiles who haven't received the law are going to be judged. Who do you, you, you have received the law, you are going to be judged, come to Christ. But he's calling them out here to receive this correction. But I encourage you, don't tune out. These verses apply very much so to us through the Holy Spirit. The problem Paul was addressing was a false sense of security that the Jews were placing both in the law, that's verse 17 to 24, and a false sense of security in circumcision, verse 25 to 29. Now, it's not that the law was bad. It's not that circumcision is bad. The problem was that they were placing their trust in having the law and having circumcision and not in Jesus Christ alone. 
as we will see, it was an external versus internal issue. The Jews here thought that just because they had the law, just because they had circumcision, they would be fine with God, exempt from his judgment because they had these things. It was a false sense of security. Two main flows of thought in these verses that Paul is teaching us. The first is in verse 17 to 24, merely possessing the law will not save from judgment. Okay, merely possessing the law will not save from judgment. Having the Bible, right, that you probably have before you is a good thing, obviously. Teaching others is right and good. But placing our hope and relying on those things to make us right with God is incorrect. It is a perversion of something good. That is exactly where some of these Jews found themselves. They had the covenants, they had the teachings of God, they had the pedigree, and they relied on those things to keep them from judgment. They had a false sense of security in being recipients of God's law. They thought, since we have God's law, they were fine with God. And we, as people today, need to hear this. Merely possessing and knowing God's word will not save us from judgment to come. We're not to boast in the fact that we have the Bible and others don't. We're only to boast in Christ and what he's done for us. And just like in chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, Paul calls out the Jews here for a self-righteousness in their life. He calls them out for being hypocrites here, of saying one thing and doing another. He lists here the misplaced hope that they had in all of these things. And you look through this in verse 17 and following, and it's this long kind of if-then statement. Paul is excellent at these sorts of things, giving these long kind of sentences and arguments, and then he's going to go a long way and then finally get to the point that he's making. So the if is like verse 17, 18, 19, 20. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, approve because you're instructed, If you're sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor, a teacher, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of truth, as he says, verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You see the disconnect here in these verses of teaching others, but not teaching yourself, as Paul says. And they consider themselves to be all of those things, a guide, a light, an instructor, a teacher, having the law, etc. Yet the self-righteousness comes across in their willful disobedience of the things that they teach not to do, they do. Teaching that adultery is wrong, but a willful commitment of adultery thinking they are okay because they have these things externally. They preach against idols, but hey, if one wants to make a little cash on the side, why not go to the Gentile temple and maybe grab an idol or two, and then you can go to the market, and you can sell that off and make a little extra money. Preach against it, yet gain from it. 
Now, certainly not every Jew was doing these things. Some were, but not everyone. But Paul uses this blatant and shocking example of disobedience to prove the point that they have violated God's law and they stand condemned because of it. They're in need of a savior. And here comes the barb in verse 23 and 24 that Paul pokes them with. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. That's the point there of those verses. You boast in the law, but actually what you're doing is you're dishonoring God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Their boasting was actually a dishonoring. Why? Because they boasted in something they couldn't keep. They boasted in merely having an external law of Moses. And the Gentiles saw this and they saw their actions and they blasphemed God because of it. It's like a reverse witness to God, like a bad witness. This is something that we see all too much in our own day. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? The church is full of hypocrites. I don't want to have anything to do with it or something like that. You ever heard that statement before? My guess would be you probably have. I always have mixed thoughts, quite frankly, when I hear that. Because in one sense, yes, Christians are hypocrites in that we sin. We're not perfect. We struggle and sometimes we do the things that we don't want to do. We seek forgiveness for them. But we sin. Don't you feel the pull of your soul when you sin? Has your conscience ever told you that? Have you been, you hypocrite. You're doing the things that you know are wrong and you're not supposed to do. You know you did wrong. You hypocrite. Anybody else talk to yourself like that? You have that, that struggle inside of you? It is that willful, well, just as to put it this, that's not what Paul is talking about here. The Christian who is struggling and living and seeking to put to death sin in their life. There's a difference between willful hypocrisy and fighting sin in our lives as a Christian. It is that willful hypocrisy and self-righteous attitude that Paul is fighting against here. Willful hypocrisy of saying one thing and willfully doing something else is a dishonor and a disgrace to God. Hypocrisy in the sense of, I struggle with sin, right, is something where we all find ourselves. We would just encourage people to say, yes, I am a hypocrite. God is working on me and changing me and, and making me more like Christ. I invite you to come be a hypocrite with me, right? At least we know we're hypocrites. We, we know we're trying to change, right? We would invite people to that, invite them to the church to be being changed by the grace of God. 
But the point is here, merely possessing the Bible will not save us from judgment. If we think that we'll be saved from judgment because we merely possess something externally, we are absolutely in error. They thought they would be fine before God because of the things that they did of teaching others, of having the law, of boasting of being a Jew. Paul says that is a false security. Lastly here, Paul brings up the issue of circumcision. This brings us to our second point in these verses, verse 25 and 29, merely being circumcised will not save from judgment. This is the first time Paul uses this word circumcision in Romans, but it won't be the last. Paul brings it up because like the law, it was something that Jews were tempted to falsely rely upon. He kind of brings it up a little bit out of the blue, right, in that circumcision wasn't being uh, spoken about. And he says, for circumcision is of deed and value. He's saying that because, of course, they're going to be thinking if they had the law, circumcision was another matter. They had this. They were fine with God. In his commentary on Romans, John MacArthur lists some rabbinic teachings that would have been floating around at that time. These are things that are written down in the Old Testament that would be uh, floating around during this time. Let me read a few of them. Quote, no circumcised Jewish man will see hell. Circumcision saves us from hell. The Midrash, which was an ancient Jewish commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures, includes the statement, quote, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised would be sent to hell. Abraham sits before the gate of hell and never allows any circumcised Israelite to enter. And it was teachings like these that led people to having a false sense of security in circumcision. And it's in these verses that Paul turns a corner of sorts as he now talks about what it actually means to be made up into the people of God and how you can tell who's a part of the family of God and who is not. And so Paul, again, if we just step back here, he's wanting to destroy these things and say everyone is in need of Christ. We can't rely on things external to save us. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Circumcision actually becomes uncircumcision for those who have broken the law and are not trusting in Christ. A mere relying on circumcision apart from trusting in Christ will profit nothing. Verse 26 and 7, so if a man who is, listen to Paul's argument here. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. There's a principle for us to learn here in these verses and that principle is this. Outward signs mean nothing without an inward reality. Listen again. Outward signs mean nothing without an inward reality. 
an outward sign of circumcision without an inward reality of being born again means absolutely nothing. Paul says the person's circumcision turns into a, quote, uncircumcision. Without inward faith and trust in Christ, the outward sign, whatever that sign is, is absolutely worthless. The uncircumcised person who produces the fruit from having trusted in the gospel will actually be regarded as being circumcised. Right? And this is where we hit play back on verse number 13, where it says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Right? It's not merely having the law that's going to make us justified before God. It's that law changing us. It's coming to faith in Christ and that law changing us that is then regarded as obedience. Even in verse number 6, chapter 2, verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. This is something he's continually bringing up. Again, we need to understand good works are not the basis of your salvation, but they are most definitely the evidence of your salvation. Listen, a true root will produce true fruit. Faith alone saves, but saving faith is not alone. It's accompanied by fruit in our lives. And when one is born again, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of them. And the Holy Spirit is living. And the Holy Spirit is active. And the Holy Spirit brings about change in our life. And that is what Paul is referring to here. Just the mere possession of these things, outward signs, means nothing without an inward reality. Oh, how we as well need to hear that today. I know that we're probably not tempted to trust in circumcision today. But we are tempted to think that we are right with God based upon good things that we have done. Oftentimes, people can be deceived into thinking they are right with God because they have been baptized. God will forgive me of my sins. I have been baptized. Or because we're a member of a church. Or because we've walked an aisle and said a sinner's prayer. Oh, yes, God, God will save me because I walked down the aisle of a church. Therefore, God will save me. Or because I take communion. Listen, you see, the problem, none of those things will matter for anything if there's not an inward reality of faith and trust in Christ in your life. Do not be deceived. Relying on those things will not save you from the judgment that is to come. Have a proper view of God's signs. Jesus instructs us, all those things are fine and good to take communion. Obviously, we're instructed to do that from Scripture, to take baptism. These are signs that point to a reality, right? Baptism is a picture of the gospel, dying and being raised. Communion's a picture of the gospel, the shed blood of Christ for us. But the mere taking of those things without the reality of faith in our life will do you no good. Christ alone saves. Get that right first and then let the signs come in their proper place and do their proper work in your life. 
In verse 28 and 29, Paul really says some strong things. What he does here is define who it is that make up the people of God. Look at what he says in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man. It doesn't come from man. His praise is from God because God gives it to him. When we keep the big picture again of the book of Romans in view, you can see why Paul needs to teach this truth of a church made up of both Jew and Gentile. Paul needed to teach clearly who are the people of God. And he defines it for us here. A true Jew, a child of God, is not along ethnic lines or ethnic pedigree. A true Jew and child of God is one who has been circumcised of heart by the Holy Spirit, not by keeping a form of the letter of the law. Yes, ethnic Jews have the promises of the Old Testament. Yes, the Savior of the world comes in fulfillment to a promise as a physical Jew. Yes, as we're going to see, Jews have great privileges. Those who are a true Jew are those who are a child of the promised Jew, Jesus Christ. On the day of judgment, a mere external possession of whatever it is other than Christ will not save. A mere external possession of God's word or even the things that God's word instructs us to do. On the day of judgment, only the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ will avail us forgiveness of sins. Paul teaches here a child of God is a believer in Jesus, whether Jew or Greek. No matter who you are, to be made in the child, to be made in the family of God is to come through Jesus Christ. Therefore, as he's going to get to later in the book, there is unity. There is unity. There is unity based upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that same truth is the truth that we need to hear today. There is unity here because of the foundation of Jesus Christ, because of the foundation that we are sinners and have broken God's law in our lives and that we receive forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, which unites us together. Differences, yes, but united together through the gospel of Jesus Christ, living together in Christian love with one another. Beloved, I don't think chapter two could be more clear in showing us that there is a judgment to come. Please listen. These are, these are not my words or these words. This is from Scripture. There is a judgment to come. 
This life, as most of you know and realize, will soon be over. This life, the Bible says, is a mist. Our years go by and they go by. The older you get, the quicker the ball rolls. And there is a judgment to come. We want to live today as if there is not the reality of a judgment. The greatest need we have in our life is to be forgiven of our sins through Jesus Christ. I plead with you today from these verses, don't be deceived about the judgment that is to come. Don't place your security and your hope in good things that God has told you to do that you think you'll be right with God because you've done these things. No, our only hope of being right with God is through the person of Jesus Christ. Everything else on that day without that reality will avail nothing. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Those who are trusting in Christ and being changed from the inside out are those who will be saved. A mere having or a keeping of an outward sign will not save the inward reality of trusting in Christ and what he's done for us brings salvation. I pray that today your commitment in Christ will be re-established, that it will be Continue to put forth roots in your life of you say, yes, I'm trusting in Christ. I'm trusting in him alone for the salvation that he has given to me. And I'm seeking to live in obedience to my father who has saved me through the Holy Spirit that he has freely given to me. Our lives are lived as the last verse here says. The praise of the person trusting in Christ. His praise is not from man, but it is from God. It is what God has done to the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would bring conviction. There's someone here who is would be honest with themselves and to say that I am not trusting alone in Christ for salvation. Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would be doing a work in that person's life, that they would realize Jesus died for them. And that, Father, they would trust and believe your promise that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. Father, help us ever to live a life that is glorifying to you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us and having mercy upon us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.